Hi, this is Erica. And I'm Julianne, and this is Radical Healing. We gather stories from the Christian missionary community in Japan where we both grew up and talk to people about what it's like to navigate life after leaving that bubble. We interview alumni from our alma mater, the Christian Academy in Japan. We also talk to people who've had similar experiences of deconstructing and reconstructing their worldviews in profound ways. By connecting with like-minded people out there who felt silenced or alone in their experiences, we want to serve as a resource for healing. Hello, welcome back to the Radical Healing Podcast. Today we have Trace joining us. Uh, we're really excited to talk to Trace today. So without further ado, Trace, can you give us a brief introduction and also include the years that you were at CAJ? Definitely. Yeah. So um, hi, I'm Trace and I was born in Japan. I like to say I was born, raised between Japan and the U.S. Um, I'm mixed Japanese and Brooklyn Jewish American. Um, and I was at CAJ my freshman and sophomore years of high school. So actually just two years. Um, and it felt like a lot longer than that because CAJ is a very condensed experience. But um, I shortly thereafter moved to New York City and I've been there since. So I've been in New York for going on 15 years now, which is actually about half my life, which is pretty crazy. Um, and I like to say that, you know, before CAJ, I had attended a lot of different kinds of schools. I moved around a lot. Um, so I've been to Japanese public school, Japanese private school, American public school, American private school, and then finally international school in Japan, which was CAJ. So I've, you know, ran the gamut of different kinds of schooling. And I think kind of my perspective, um, also is very much influenced by the types of schools that I attended. All the private schools that I attended were Christian. So um, I definitely kind of come from a very evangelical Christian background when it comes to education um, outside of the public, public schools that I attended. I didn't know yeah. that you were at CAJ for only two years because I feel like you had a big impact. You were this yeah. like brilliant artistic creative guy um you directed the play that um we were both in um i was just gonna say the, the you and i were in that school play together and i was co-student director and you were actually the star of the play <laughs> how did and you get to be co-student director i actually and this is kind of i can say this now but i think it was kind of like a thing where a bunch of us had auditioned and they wanted to give everybody some kind of part and so i got to be co-student director along with the one other person um i think just so that nobody was left out but it was, it was a fun experience um nice. i'm sure there was they saw talent uh, your directorial directorial skills that were <laughs> they saw that good. i was very bossy and they were like <laughs> all right let's <laughs> No, but for no, real, I can't believe you were only at CAJ for two years. Like, it just feels yeah. like you were always there. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, I was kind of around during the thrift shops and things like that because I was part of SSS, um, which I forget what it stands for, something school services, um, for a few years and before I officially um, joined CAJ. So 
I was kind of around, but I think, yeah, really in terms of actually attending school. Um, so I was one grade above Erica and Julianne. But I think, Erica, you and I had geometry together, I believe. Yeah, I, I was uh, Mrs. Mutenda's class, right? Mrs. Mutenda's class, where I was probably one of the worst students she's ever had. <laughs> because I was very, not disruptive. I just remember playing around a lot in that class and like well, distracting Well, yeah, people. you were like the star of the class. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Mutenda, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. I was not a great student. But so yes. before CHA, you were mm -hmm. attending Japanese school? So I was a Japanese, um, yeah, so before freshman year, I did a few years at Japanese private, at a private Lutheran school. And then, yeah, and then kind of before that, American public school, American private school, um, and then Japanese public school during elementary school. Wow, so many varied experiences. Like Definitely. all of the possible combinations, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it really helped to attend. I honestly, as much as I hated it, I, I like to say that American public school was what really prepared me for kind of being living in both of these cultures. Because prior to that, I was a very, I think, Japanese kid culturally. Um, and then I came and attended American public school and I quickly had to learn to be more assertive. I had to learn to speak my mind. I had to learn to set boundaries because otherwise, you, you know, American public elementary school. Um, and this was in a town that was, I think something like 96% white or 90, 95% <laughs> white in Western Massachusetts. Um, and so really, if you aren't, if you don't have a strong sense of self, it's it's hard to really go anywhere from there. And I think, you know, by the time I got to CAJ, I think I had learned a little bit more about kind of how to navigate that multicultural um, experience <laughs> that is CAJ, just partly in due to having attended both of those, you know, all those different schools. So let me ask you, like, based on all of your experiences, um, would you say that CAJ felt more American or more Japanese? So I was actually gonna um, say that this is, <laughs> but this is what one good thing about CHA or one of the good things about CHA is that it was, it's very American. Um, I think it really prepared me for moving to the States. Um, I think that it has just, you know, by virtue of it having so many missionary kids who come over from the States, um, it has a very, it's, it's very un-Japanese in that sense. So you really learn to navigate um, things in an American way. Um, and also you just pick up a lot of American culture along the way. Um, up, up until attending CAJ, I don't think I had any idea what was popular in the US. Like I didn't know what American Idol was or this is what, like season two of American Idol. <laughs> um, I didn't know what any of these things were. And then attending CAJ, I think I had to pick up on a lot of American culture very, very quickly. Like wearing the old Navy American flag t-shirt was cool um, <laughs> back in our day. Old Navy, Aeropostal, I don't even know Abercrombie, how to say that. Abercrombie, yeah, <laughs> all of those cool American things that we didn't have in Japan. <laughs> so it was like an introduction to American culture. 
kind of. Yeah, I mean, even though, like even though I was going back and forth between Japan and the States, I would spend summers in the States, or, you know, I would attend certain years of school in the States. I think having a high school experience that is American is very different from having an elementary school experience that is American, and that you really have a lot more to worry about as far as cultural elements go, um, like socially, um, like I said, pop culturally, or even things like, you know, banquet, or you, you're a lot more of a, of a real person with a real identity in high school <laughs> versus elementary school. And so I think that, yeah, I think that having the American elements to kind of supplement the Japanese culture that you're surrounded by um, really kind of creates more of a melded person. And I found actually that the people that, I'm, that I've met later in life that also are from kind of this international school background or Japanese American background, um, we tend to click almost instantly because it is a very specific culture of this, you know, US Japan um, mix. I, as a Hafu, I have this bad tendency to compare myself to other Hafu, or I think I just am always like very interested in other Hafu as like, ooh, what type of animal are they? Like kind of uh, like what species Hafu, like just trying to understand because I think it ties to my self-consciousness about not having as good Japanese skills as I want. And so um, growing up um, at CHA, I would always be aware of other hafus, like, oh, their Japanese is really good. Like, I wish I was like that, um, comparing myself, just kind of hyper aware. And I remember you, like high school, Julianne, being like, wow, Trace is so um, good at uh, interacting in both of those worlds, like so fluid in a way that stood out. And I think um, that was pretty rare. I think there's a tendency for Hafu to kind of skew to one culture or la- one language, but you were just like perfect in both, it seemed like. And I was like, <laughs> Akogare? like wow, that's what I aspire to be like. And also very, you know, entertaining. Like you, uh, I-, I remember that one talent show that you did this dance or led a dance oh, God. and yeah. just like that confidence and yeah I was like wow you know I Wait, got it what I got dance was this <laughs> what this was for talent show we a group of girls and I did parapara dancing oh which yeah was popularized um for those of you who don't know it was popularized by the Japanese gyaru culture um, which was, I, I can't even delve into the history of ghetto culture because I can't say that I, <laughs> I know much about it. But it, it was, you know, it was popularized by these kind of young girls, uh, almost like a counterculture movement of Japan in the 90s, um, where they really kind of emulated Western culture in some ways. Oh, anyway, so we did this dance. Um, looking back, I did get in trouble for it, for being too flamboyant at CHA, um, now, specifically because of they, that dance. <laughs> how would they, like, what rule were you breaking, you know? Like, you know, how did they describe it to you? <laughs> it was kind of a you-know-what-you-did situation. I remember wow. I was actually sitting outside in the campus right after, 
and an administrator walked by and was like, oh, you know, you have to go in and like change right now. Like you can't be walking around like this. Um, I don't even remember what I was wearing. I think it was like a shirt um, and sunglasses, maybe. Like you weren't wearing a skirt, right? <laughs> no, definitely not. But you Although still I think had that would have change. been pretty radical. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, still, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there was something about the way that I presented myself and yeah. that that was not uh, campus acceptable. And yeah. we can get into that a little bit later also. Oh my God. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny that you say that I was so um, fluid, I guess, and, and interacting. I kind of look back on those years as being in such survival mode. Um, you know, in part because of my identity as a queer person, but also I think because I switched schools so many times into so many different cultures, like there was no gap between, for example, me attending Japanese public school to attending American public school and immediately switching to learning in all English um, and of completely American culture. Um, so I spent a lot of my earlier years kind of learning to transition in that, between these different cultures and these social groups and kind of you know, riding those waves, I guess, in a sense. Um, CHA actually felt very easy to me culturally because it was a mix and kind of amalgamation of all of those different cultures that I had tried to survive in earlier. And so I was like, oh yeah, like I'm familiar with this. I could do this um, versus, you know, being dropped into an American school bus as a completely Japanese uh, second grader with a very strong Japanese accent is <laughs> very different from attending CHA. And so I think by the time that I'd gone to CHA, I had, um, I'd really learned how to navigate. And so I was a lot more adept at it. Um, but I, I guess it's, it's just still interesting to me that people viewed me that way because I think I look back and I kind of cringe at a, I mean, we all look back on our high school experience and cringe, but I also think a lot about how much of survival mode that I was in. Yeah, that's very real. So what are you doing now? <laughs> so now um, I currently, like I said, I live in New York City. Um, I work in uh, internal and external communications for a major beverage company, so like a consumer packaged goods company. Um, and I've been doing that for about five years. Before that, I worked in educational administration, uh, small business management. So I've always kind of been doing this, it's like, a, like a management administration kind of roles, um, helping people communicate with each other, but also helping things run smoothly internally, I guess, is, is a good way to put it. Um, a lot of problem solving, a lot of putting out fires. Um, outside cross-culturally, mm -hmm. right? With, um, is it specifically Japanese companies and American companies kind of bridging those or not necessarily? Yeah, not necessarily. Um, so mm -hmm. this is actually the first Japanese company that I've worked for. Um, and so my current uh, role is for a U.S. subsidiary of a Japanese company. And so I definitely use a lot of those cross-cultural skills. And outside I I of work? Off. Yeah. Yeah, so outside of work, I, um, I currently am involved in a neighborhood mutual aid group. Um, so I spend a lot of my time thinking about that and uh, interacting with my neighbors. I also am part of, a, of an LGBTQ running club or a running team. And so I 
pre-COVID, I was running a lot of races. Um, right now, you know, with COVID, a lot of the races got canceled, but I still do some training. Um, and which is funny because I was very anti-PE in high school. Um, it was the only thing that brought my GPA down in high school. Thank you, Coach Log. And um, <laughs> so I think this is kind of my adult revenge. Um, I wouldn't say it's a radical healing, but I would say that it's a little bit of a revenge towards my high school self to just really throw myself into um, being athletic and really trying to do something with my <laughs> adult uh, athletic career. <laughs> I resonate with that, Trace. I was just sharing on the uh, last episode that I've uh, discovered running, that I, I love it. And I'm probably like nowhere near the commitment that you are, um, but just embracing it as this practice for my mental health. And also I get to run along Kamogawa River in Kyoto, which is just gorgeous. Oh, wow. And so it's just like nature you know, some like this transcendence, euphoric feeling uh, after, you know, a good run. It's just, wow, I wish adolescent Julianne knew about this, you know? Oh, definitely. And it, it's, it's also crazy how much more enjoyable it is or how much more invigorating it is when you're not doing it to survive the dog or like when you're not doing it to survive. Can you, coach can you define the dog for? <laughs> I believe it was a two mile run. Am I correct in that? I think it was like 1.8 or something, almost oh, well, two miles. It felt like the full two miles when we did it. Um, it was a run that we had to do, I think in a certain amount of time also maybe, um, or else you were disqualified. <laughs> uh, you, one of you may remember this better than I I just remember the dog being a thing and I remember hating it. And it was named the dog because there's a lot of people who walk their dogs along the route. <laughs> I did not know that was why it was named the dog, but it makes sense. Yes, and you would have to kind of run along the streets, um, which probably would have been a lot more enjoyable um, if you were any kind of runner during that time. <laughs> so Trace, how do you see the world differently now versus when you were growing up? A great question. Um, I, I think I, you know, when, when I think about my perspective growing up, it was very much colored by Christian fundamentalism. It was colored by evangelical Christianity. Um, and it was very trapped in that viewpoint. Um, I think and there's a quote by um, Alice Miller, who's a psychologist, and she says, the love I gained with such uphill effort and self-defacement was not meant for me at all, but for the me I created to please them. And I think about that quote a lot because I think that everything that I worked towards as a kid or as, a young, as my younger self was really kind of to meet this end goal of becoming this perfect or better Christian or becoming an acceptable Christian. And so everything, you know, I talked about kind of being in survival mode earlier. I think that survival mode was a lot about how can I become something that is acceptable to the community that, I'm, that I've grown up in? How can I become something that is acceptable to this religion or to this, um, you know, to my family or to my friends? And so I think that 
now that I'm in post-survival mode, um, I don't know if I'm thriving, but I'm in post-survival mode where I can really think about things from a more outside perspective, from a more loving perspective towards both the world and myself. Um, I think what I've, the biggest change that, you know, you notice is that you aren't, or that I'm not viewing the world as an enemy um, or as something to survive. And I think that's, something that we can get into a little bit more also, but really when you grow up in this Christian paradigm of us versus them, it's a very black and white, you're saved or you're not, you're good or you're evil. Um, you really internalize that as a kid and it kind of reflects itself in everything that you do and how you interact with everybody. And I think the way that I view the world now is much more, is with a much more empathetic um, point of view, more so in the sense that, you know, I'm very much a part of the world and who the people that I interact with on a daily basis, the people that, you know, my neighbors, my, my friends, there's no kind of separation between placing myself on a certain pedestal and kind of being that savior to other people. And I think that's the biggest difference um, in my adult life. Yeah, I really resonate with that of like, now there's actual like love for the world and love for myself. Like in, in the way that we were growing up, the way that we were raised, it was like, you yourself are sort of an enemy to yourself, right? You're always trying mm -hmm. to battle your own whatever instincts or whatever, right? You're always fighting against yourself and you're always like fighting against the world, like, you know, yeah, there's just so much more love now, love and acceptance. <laughs> and it's it's so it's so evident in the way that I see people. Um, because I was thinking, you know, as I was about to come on this podcast, I was thinking about, well, how did I view the world when I was younger or even in high school? And um, I think Erica, you and I were on gospel team together. I don't know if Julian, did you do GT? I did okay. not. Um, and gospel team, <laughs> you should be grateful for that. Um, gospel team is an experience where a group of uh, high BA, so basically Christian high school kids, uh, get together and get into vans, and we drive all across Japan uh, proclaiming the gospel of Christ, which is basically standing at uh, stations and street corners and trying to coerce and scare Japanese people, unsuspecting uh, Japanese people into believing that they are sinful and going to hell. Um, but it was like a smile and like a really outgoing, like in a very gregarious way. <laughs> Which... Yeah, there was a lot of like, be attracted by white people. So you'll be curious and come to this meeting. And yes. then we're going to be super, super happy and then tell you that you're sinful and going to hell. <laughs> I remember there was like a specific flow to it too, where we'd like, we'd try to put the white kids out there so that the Japanese kids would be interested. Yeah. There was a flow of kind of like starting with the more like upbeat, like exciting songs. And then you would kind of slowly flow into more of like the, you're going to hell, the blood of Christ, this and that. And then it would be like, all right, who wants to get saved? Who wants to not go to hell? And I just look back and think like, if I were a Japanese high school student that had no exposure to religion, <laughs> outside of Shintoism or whatever culture that I grew up in 
and I had been brought into this situation, I'd be scared out of my mind. I mean. <laughs> and it's like, okay, number one, further reinforcing the notion that Christianity is a white person's thing. <laughs> number two, Christianity is entirely about like, oh no, you're going to hell. <laughs> Oh, like, absolutely. That yeah. is, those are, those were the two messages we were preaching about Christianity. It's about being around white people and speaking English and acting, you know, according to Western culture. And it's about going to hell. Definitely. And there's a strong aspect of manipulation that you learn along the way, which is how can you get these people to admit their deepest, darkest fears and play into that, into getting them saved and being converted all within the period of one or two nights. And so not only is there a time limit on this manipulation, you also kind of have to learn to be very emotionally savvy in getting kind of to their core. But uh, yeah, it was just, it was an experience where it really reinforced my worldview that Japanese people were living in, specifically unsaved Japanese people were living in darkness. And that's a specific phrase that I learned, heard a lot growing up. And it was very, 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 you know, the more it was reiterated to me over and over again, I think the more that I believed it and it colored the way that I viewed Japanese people. Um, even as a Japanese person myself, I mean, I consider myself, you know, I think I identify as Asian American now. Um, but I just remember seeing them in almost this gray light of being unsaved, not even these individual people, but kind of like a general blur of unsaved people with no purpose to their life. Um, nobody is an actual identity. It was all just kind of this blur. Yeah, it's incredibly um, dehumanizing to categorize an entire population of people as this one thing um, in a way that I think was not done to, for example, white Americans. Mm -hmm. And it's such a, yeah, and it's a great example of paternalism in that we're making all of these decisions on their behalf. Um, that They need to be saved. They need to learn our culture in order to be acceptable, um, which really, I mean, traits of white supremacy, obviously, but also it shows kind of how hand in hand Japanese, the Christian or the evangelical missionary work in Japan is tied to white imperialism in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's, it's just sort of a, um, a, a modern extension of what's been going on, you know, for centuries. Definitely. You need to learn English, um, you know, um, you need to take on our worldview and, and because ours is, you know, I guess the correct one. Mm -hmm. um, and yours is both mysterious and <laughs> unacceptable. <laughs> right. The only one right way kind of syndrome mm -hmm. where your culture doesn't matter because it's not the correct one. Mm hmm um, and the erasure and, of that, yeah. Yeah, and you need us. You need us to go and tell you that you're wrong. Right. And I, I think we were so convinced of it, which mm -hmm. is the scary part. Um, 
And, you know, I think as an adult, when I look at the people who are still kind of fundamentalist or in a lot of ways, I think it's transitioned from this missionary work to almost a calling out work in a sense. Um, I, I sometimes see, you know, comments on people's social media posts from other fundamentalist Christians where they're kind of denigrating the person who's been posted. Um, for example, recently um, somebody posted an interview with a Vietnamese poet um, who was queer and I just remember seeing in the comments somebody had posted about how, you know, he's the reason that modern society is crumbling and he's the definition of an emasculated person and it's so sad and this and that. And I just remember thinking, like, from, you know, the, the background of not only this person writing all of that to somebody that they don't know or have, you know, have no connection to, but also the kind of the impact that it must have on people who see that. Um, and I think, you know, that's something that we don't really think about growing up um, in this kind of, in this kind of soldier mode, this Christian soldier mode, is that we're learned to, we're trained to really attack anything that isn't, it doesn't fit the narrative. And I think in doing so, there's so much damage that we create, um, even unknowingly. Um, uh, there was an internet comment that I saw recently. I love referencing internet comments. Um, there's an internet <laughs> comment that I saw recently that said, you know, that was talking about kind of people body shaming or talking about flaws in celebrities. And they were saying, you know, it's, it's not, we're not saying to not talk about celebrity flaws or like in their, you know, skin or their appearance or whatever, because they're going to see it or get hurt. It's because somebody or one of your friends with those exact same traits or going through that exact same thing is going to see it and think, wow, this is what they think about me all the time. And I really identified with that because I think, you know, growing up, well, maybe not growing up queer, um, but once I came into the realization that I was queer, um, every comment that I saw from my friends related to somebody else, I took very personally because I thought, wow, this is how they view people who are queer. This is how they view people who are X or Y. And I really took that to heart. And I think, you know, over time that can do a lot of damage um, to a person. Yeah. That kind of casual throwaway racism or um, homophobia or misogyny that affects individuals profoundly. Definitely. And I think, you know, unfortunately, especially within evangelical Christianity or fundamentalism, there is this culture of calling it out, um, which in turn does a lot of harm externally, I think. Could you explain what you mean by calling it out? Oh, either, you know, calling it out in um, their teachings or calling it out online in comments. Um, I need to declare that this is wrong. Right. I need mm. people to know that this is exactly where I stand on it. Mm. Um, I think in high school, there was a Facebook post about a trans person. And I remember somebody from CAJ commenting on how disgusting this person was. And that really stuck with me because I thought, wow, like, you don't know this person. And for you to declare that so publicly, um, and I think it was a little bit, maybe more, a little bit more strongly worded, but 
I think, you know, when you come from this perspective of being a soldier, a Christian soldier, or kind of fighting this battle or war, I don't blame them necessarily for having that kind of thinking or thinking they need to act in that way or act out in that way. Because I think you really don't know what else to do or you're very much conditioned to act in that way. Um, and I think, you know, for a long time, I also felt a lot of hatred towards different people or maybe different groups or identities because I was brought up in that way. Um, something, so I, I love reading books about psychotherapy. And one of the things in attachment theory, um, attachment theory focuses a lot on the way that you're brought up and the experiences as you're growing up and how they affect your, the way that you interact with the world as an adult. And so the part of the part of the brain called the amygdala um, is what is responsible for kind of your gut reaction to things. Um, it draws upon basically memories that you have that might necess not necessarily be conscious, but it affects the way that you interact with the world along with the cortex. It affects the world, the way that you interact with the world. Now, I'm um, drawing upon both experience, these kind of sensory memories, or let's say, these subconscious ways of thinking. And then also it all helps you predict how things will happen. So, you know, for example, let's say if I was attacked in a dark alley when I was younger, um, I might have this gut reaction towards going anywhere that is darker as an adult because I have that, maybe it might be subconscious, but that memory and I associate it with danger. And so any kind of, at the hint of darkness, I might not even have that thought process but I immediately will associate it with danger. Um, I think thin slicing is another way that people describe that. But when you grow up in this fundamentalist, evangelical Christian environment, there are a lot of things that you are taught are wrong and are evil at its core. And when you use that kind of language with a kid, um, whether you are conscious of it or not, you start to associate these things as being actually evil as an adult. And so the sense of this gut reaction of repulsion or this gut reaction of hate um, is a natural reaction to all of these things because you're brought up in that way. And I think for the longest time, for example, I couldn't even love myself because I had this gut reaction to my own identity as being sinful or evil. Um, and that's not just, you know, to my own identity, but to people outside. Um, and so the, diff, the toughest thing about, you know, when we think about now versus growing up, the toughest thing that I had to do was to unlearn and unassociate or disassociate all of those links between my memories, what I was taught growing up, and my gut reaction to things now. Um, and I think it's particularly interesting because growing up evangelical, you're taught a lot about the Holy Spirit. You know, if the Holy Spirit moves you or if you feel that something is wrong, it's because of the Holy Spirit. And it's like, mm, actually, that's just the amygdala. <laughs> it's actually just a natural part of your brain chemistry. Yeah, um, that's me. <laughs> that's me. And basically all of the rhetoric that I was fed growing up manifesting itself in a subconscious form so really, I mean, I was fed the Holy Spirit, the quote-unquote Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is making me 
feel sick to my stomach. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, and I always thought that was such a, or I, you know, as an adult, I think that's such a interesting tactic um, to use that kind of woo-woo, like, you know, this ghost is making you feel things. You, mm. should, you should listen to that ghost. When in reality, it's, you know, 18 years of, of teachings and mm. kind of reinforcement of who is good and who is evil. So will you tell us what your attachment style is? <laughs> yes, I can. Um, so, well, there's different categor categorizations depending on, I think, the, the school of thought. But um, I, can, I categorize myself as an anxious attachment style. Okay. I'm currently using a workbook to find out my attachment style. <laughs> but I think that, mm -hmm. and again, the, I'm, I'm a, my background is in sociology. And so anytime I do stuff with psychology, I'm like, wait a minute. You know, I think a lot of the, um, you know, explanation for why you are the way you are is like, well, what about mm -hmm. your like family dynamics, right? And of course that's important. But I think your point about like the culture that you grow up in I think would also shape your attachment style, right? Strongly, strongly. And, you know, one of the characteristics of an anxious attachment style is that you're constantly scanning the, your surroundings to make sure that everything is okay, to make sure to see any hint of an emotional change in, for example, your partner or the people around you that you're interacting with, because you're so used to reacting to conflict or making smoothing things over whenever there's a slightest hint of dissatisfaction around you. Um, wow, you just, uh, you just described me, Trace. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think that, you know, I don't want to generalize here, but I do think that anxious attachment style is also very strongly tied to growing up in a Japanese culture. Um, because I'm going to reference another internet thing here. Have you heard of ask culture versus guest culture? Oh. So there was this post um, years back that talked about a person who had grown up in an ask culture family, and they were asking if other people were ask culture or guest culture. And so ask culture is that you're raised in a family where you're allowed to ask for anything, but with the expectation that you're not always going to get it. So the thought is, you know, you should always ask just to see what's going to happen. And then you might not get it, but then you're not going to be devastated when you don't get it because it's like, all right, well, I asked and I didn't get it. Guess culture is you grow up guessing whether or not something is acceptable or going to be okayed. And you don't ask unless you're 100% sure that it's going to be okay. So I think a lot of when I moved to American, to the US and I attended American public school, that was ask culture at its finest. People would ask, oh, hey, can I have that? Can I, can I do that? Can I see that? And I couldn't say no, because to my raised Japanese viewpoint, I was like, well, they wouldn't have asked unless they thought it was 100% okay. <laughs> Let me go ahead and mm -hmm. give this away or do this or say this. When in reality, they were just asking for the hell of it. And so to my guest culture self, it was a very stark difference. Um, so I'm curious, do you think you grew up with ass culture or guest culture in your house? Mm. I think my family, there is so much that is unspoken, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I was going to say the same for my family. Yeah, too. there's a lot of like going around 
very much all the way around instead of like going <laughs> straight there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, it does kind of feel like it would be more of like, you don't want to offend by asking something that, you know, like, oh no, what if they're offended if I ask this? As a, right. you know, yeah. Which is 100% guest culture, I would say. <laughs> you know, you're guessing whether someone's going to be offended or not. You're guessing whether or not it's an acceptable question to ask. Um, and I think one of the things that mystified me so much was that culturally growing up, I was in the epitome of guest culture, which is Japanese culture, where you absolutely cannot ask anything unless you're sure that it's socially acceptable um, or situationally acceptable. We talk a lot about reading the room in Japanese culture, you know, kukyo yomu, so like reading the air. Um, And that's very much considered a good trait in Japan is to be part of guest culture. And then on the flip side, you have Christianity, which is kind of this divine ask culture where it's like, well, you can ask God for anything you want. He might not give it to you, but you should definitely ask for it in your prayers. Um, And I think I never really understood that. And I think I had such a hard time with the concept of prayer because ask culture was so foreign to me. And I thought, well, I can't ask God for just anything. I have to see if he's going to be okay with it or not. (laughs) And I think that maybe Christianity is a lot more accessible to people who grow up in Western cultures because they're so used to ask culture that it's second nature to them to ask this divine entity for anything they want. They're like, oh yeah, let's pray about this real quick. Let's pray about this. Whereas I'd be like, well, I kind of have to think about this and like think about the scriptures and see if God would be okay with me asking for this particular thing. Am I being selfish? You know? Yeah. And I think that is when we say Christianity, like our brand of Christianity, I think there are many, many different brands of Christianity, you know, that are part of so many different cultures, but yeah. Fundamental American fundamentalism specifically, I would say like evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of that I experienced uh, in my college ministry where, uh, uh, well, also I think, you know, high school too, but, this emphasis on having like an intimacy with God, an intimacy with Jesus. And like, you have to learn to love Jesus. Uh, and so, you know, like talk to him about everything. And mm-hmm. that made me uncomfortable because I think just this kind of forced, like you have to love this invisible person entity and then also you know have to be like narrating all of your desires and wants and to create this intimacy but i'm just like oh like what i can't do that like yeah i think that kind of like lovey-dovey-ness with jesus mm-hmm. is also part of that kind of like casual like oh let me just you know spout all of my life's you know mundane things to my creator god who I love so much. Um, yeah, I think that I just never, I tried, I really wanted to do that because that's what like, what, what the ideal kind of, especially for like a Christian woman, you know, you have to have this like deep, intimate relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could never quite get there, I felt, and frustrated by that. Yeah, and I think a lot of the prayer that I was exposed to growing up was really weaponized in a way where it would be, 
you know, I'm praying for this person because they're so sinful. I'm praying for this person because they're walking in this valley of the shadow of death. Um, you know, it was, it was always kind of tied to this making somebody out to be lesser than because of their circumstance or because of their life or because of their personhood. Um, and so that's why I think I never really understood the intimacy of prayer because I was like, well, you know, you're just, you're basically just praying for this person in a very kind of savior way of please help them be better, as good as us or be better, um, which is their own battle to fight, I think, um, yeah, if, if like, they do need to be better. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what do you know about this person? You know, like, right, right. You have no idea what this person's experience is. And it's, all, it's also this like legitimatized form of gossip too. Like I have yes. this prayer request for this person. Like, oh, I'm so worried about them. I just love them so much that I have to share all these details about what they're, all the mistakes they're making. Yeah, as you're in like a 30-person Bible study. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then those people are going to go out and do the prayer request thing. And that's why gossip spreads so quickly within evangelical Christianity. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, and that was kind of a stark difference also between our kind of gospel work um, and towards these Japanese, quote unquote, unsaved Japanese kids is that we would listen to them, but we weren't listening to them because we wanted to help them genuinely with their situation or what they were struggling with. I mean, maybe we did want to help them in a way because we thought God would help them, but it wasn't about listening to them for the sake, like we weren't truly hearing them. It was about listening to them to reinforce our idea that they were straying or that they were living in darkness and thereby giving us further conviction to convert them. Um, I volunteered, after moving to New York, I volunteered for, a, for an LGBT national hotline for several years. And kind of the one big rule of being a peer counselor for a hotline is that you're not there to provide solutions for people. You're just there to listen. And, you know, you, all you are is you're there because they call in because they have nobody else to talk to about these things. And so you're just there kind of as a presence for them to be able to talk about their, what they're going through or their deepest fears. And obviously, you know, you can connect them to resources if you need to, but you're not there to provide solutions. And that was such a difference from coming from gospel work or missionary work in that everything had kind of this end goal of converting the person versus I'm here in the capacity of a peer counselor sitting here and saying, hey, I'm giving you my undivided attention as a form of love for you as a person. I want you to be able to feel comfortable sharing whatever it is with me. And I'm not going to try to bring you to any one side or conclusion or whatever it is. I'm just giving you my attention as a form of love, basically, um, as another human being. And I think that was that kind of listening exercise um, for myself was really a turning point in how I interacted with people. Um, and really how I viewed people in their individual struggles. Um, and struggle not necessarily being their struggle with faith, but just struggles in life in general. Um, and 
I think, you know, I really had to kind of relearn the act of listening, um, along with many other things. But I think listening was a, a huge part of that. Um, so you grew up very much between these two different worlds, existed in both of them. Now you say you identify as Asian American. So what are your thoughts on this term TCK? <laughs> I think even, you know, when I first heard the term TCK, I was in, attending CHA in Japan and I didn't really understand it because I felt more local than anything else. I mean, I spent a, gr a good chunk of my life growing up in Japan, I attended Japanese public school, Japanese private school. I'd gone through education in Japan. So I think, I, to me, it felt more like a missionary term than anything for, you know, people who'd come over from the States with their families. Um, that said, I always, I identified with the outsider aspect of it in that because, you know, my mom is this blonde-haired, green-eyed person. Um, so when we were in Japan, I would be seen also as kind of an outsider in, in a lot of ways, even at Japanese public school. And then in the States, <laughs> um, have either of you seen the movie Minari? Yes, I loved it. I gotta okay. watch it. It's such a good movie. But um, so it's about this Korean American family um, trying to survive in the Midwest and kind of their a slice of life uh, there. But there's a scene in the movie Minari without spoiling too much. There's a scene where they attend church um, in the Midwest for the first time. And, you know, they're used to going to Korean church, but because the Korean church is in the city this far away, they attend a local church. And it's them, there's a shot of the whole congregation, which is entirely white, and then this Asian American family, Korean American family sitting in the middle. And the pastor goes, if you're new to this church, you know, don't be shy, please stand up. And they stand up, and it's hundreds of these basically white people staring at this Korean American family and they're like, welcome. And I thought that scene stuck with me for so long because I was like, that was my experience as an Asian American kid growing up in the States, especially going to these like unknown churches and having to introduce myself every single time and probably being the only Asian American or Asian person there. Um, and so I identify with the concept of being of being somebody that is not necessarily uniform or standard in any culture. Um, but that was true of, you know, anywhere that I grew up in. And I consider that an asset. Now, I think living in New York City, I mean, it's really just a mixture of so many different cultures. And what I love about New York City is that you can pretty much be or do like whatever you want. And unless you're hurting somebody, nobody cares because it's such a, um, because you have so many different people living their very different lives, coming from different backgrounds. Um, and I think that's why I identify with it so much, because I'm such a mixture of different things that I never really felt like I belonged specifically to any one culture. Um, and, you know, even within Christianity, I never really felt like I belonged. So I, I don't know. I, I feel like the term TCK in a lot of ways, and I, I'm sure you've discussed this on the podcast before, is it kind of is a persecution complex in some ways um, of saying, oh, we're the outsiders in this culture, when in reality you're an immigrant who moved to a different culture. And a lot of times you're an immigrant who moved to a different culture 
to spread your form of imperialism or what you believe to be true. Um, and it's kind of a cute package for all of that, I guess. Right. Immigration is nothing new. There are so many people who immigrate to new cultures, but we got that colonialism package <laughs> that we brought with us. <laughs> right. And I mean, it's, it's language, right? Like, you know, when you look at even the news and how people talk about expats versus immigrants or illegals versus, you know, people who just moved here. Um, and I think it's just another form of, I guess, language um, is, is how I see it. Yeah, it's, I think at the time when it was created, it was a healing term for many people because there wasn't a term like that um, before. And, mm -hmm. and even for like people who don't necessarily come to mind when we think of like TCK, not like people who aren't just like white expat types, like a mm -hmm. lot of people could find belonging in the umbrella of this term. And it was, I think, healing because there wasn't something quite that reflected this sense of being, you know, part of multiple cultures and the loneliness, the homesickness, that kind of vague, not knowing where of belonging. Um, but now I think it's very obvious that it's lacking as a term and is quite blunt to describe the complexity of uh, people who grew up with multi multiple cultures and all the like the variables too that go with it and like the the, the power structures um, that aren't addressed with that term too. Yeah. And I think it was also, I think it's specifically about um, maybe trying to distinguish the experience of someone who chooses as an adult to move to another country versus their children mm. who are just kind of passed around, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think part of it is like trying to explain to the parents like this is your child's experience um it's not your experience you know it's different from you and as adult you have your already formed identity you know um yeah definitely and i you know i really understand and identify with the need for language and vocabulary to describe what you're going through because i do think that is so important um you know, now we have, I think current day in 2021, we have a lot of language or a lot of new vocabulary to describe identity or to describe experiences or emotions. And I find that to be really important to the experience of growing up. Um, I, I look around now and I think if I had had these access to these terms and this vocabulary when I was growing up, I think I would have felt a lot less confused about who I was because I, I would have been able to tie my indescribable or kind of these vague emotions to something that is more concrete and I would have had a way to describe myself. What um, words do you think would have been most useful to you? I don't know if it's specific words but for example growing up I didn't even realize that I was queer um, until probably late junior high, um, potentially early high school. <laughs> because I didn't know 
what I didn't know how to tie my emotions and feelings to something to a concept because I didn't have access to that concept and so you know I had girlfriends I had you know I dated I just thought that I was different in certain aspects but I didn't really understand what was going on with me um or and that's not just you know even outside of my queerness I think it's my experiences or even my emotions that I experienced growing up um, I think a lot of it was filed under either being evil or, you know, demonic or of Satan or of, you know, or selfish even. Um, like to think about yourself as an actualized person, I was taught growing up is selfish because you're putting yourself first and not God. And I think the biggest shift in language for me was when I started to use empathetic language in the way that I thought about not just concepts, but myself, um, instead of a sympathetic language of, oh, you're a sinner that needs to be saved. Um, a word that I've been thinking about recently is like worth and worthy. And in Christian culture, you hear the word worthy a lot because, you know, he is worthy, but we are not worthy. God is worthy, or these people are worthy, but we are not worthy of this, or we are not worthy of being saved, but he saved us anyway. And so when I started to grow up and I started to hear about the term self-worth, I thought, well, that's such a selfish word because worth is something that is ascribed to you by God. It's not something that you can just make up for yourself. You can't just be worthy. Um, and yet, you know, the, the falsehood, or I want to say maybe the, the danger of Christianity, and I think, um, you know, Marlene Winnell talks about this, in her book as well, but it it purports or it's it says that it's going to meet all of your basic needs, right? Like survival and belonging and safety, um, and not just that, but also self esteem. When we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and so all of your self esteem has to be tied specifically to Christianity. Your belonging is tied to Christianity. Your safety is tied to Christianity. Your self esteem more than anything is tied to Christianity. And I think I struggled after I started to leave Christianity. I, I don't know if leaving is the right word. If, after I started to heal from the experience of evangelical Christianity, the toughest thing that I had to deal with was reframing and relearning the language of not just kind of experiences and identity, but also love in general. I've, I also have been reading um, a book called How to Be an Adult by a psychotherapist named David Rico. And it's a handbook on psychological and spiritual integration, which sounds very like frou-frou, self-help, new wave, but um, he's actually very insightful in the, in the way that he talks about language in general. Um, and one of the things that he, one of the chapters is called uh, Declarations of Unhealthy Adulthood. And one of the lines that really stood out to me, and one of the declarations is, you know, I accept full responsibility for the shape my life has taken. And it's such a simple sentence, but it felt so, it struck me because growing up in an evangelical Christian 
environment, I never took responsibility for the good things that I did or for the good things that happened because they were only happened. They only happened because God allowed them to or because the Holy Spirit enabled me to or because circumstantially that was the plan for me. Um, now the bad things that happened, sure, maybe because of me, because I was a fallible human being, but also because of the devil. And so as a healthy, self-actualized adult, learning, relearning to take responsibility for everything that happens to you, not just taking responsibility for the bad things that you do, but also taking responsibility for the good things that you do, for the person that you are now, for the character, the character traits that people love you for, or for, you know, the things that your friends and partners say that they love you for. And fully accepting that as part of who you are as a self-actualized human being, I think is such a big part of healing, is relearning that language of love and learning to tie that to yourself and your identity and who you are as a result of what you've been through, but also you as a person. Yeah, I. this might be only tangentially related, but I think of my experiences with romantic interests or people being interested in me. And in college, I would have this pattern of being annoyed when people were interested in me because I was like, the things that they're attracted to, they're so shallow. Like I couldn't see the value in my attractive traits, I guess. It was like, they don't, they, they don't know the true me, like this broken creature. Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would just interpret any type of romantic interest as like, oh, how, like it's, it's all delusions or it's all like fake stuff that they are attracted to. It's just, just weird reaction that I would have. Um, yeah, that's, that's one thing that came up for me when I was listening to you. Yeah, and you know, like that famous quote, we accept the love that we think we deserve. So when we're raised thinking that we don't, we're not worthy of love, when we're not deserving of love at this level, we, we, know, we grow up thinking that we, like you said, you know, are not all of us is worthy of love. And so it's harder for us to accept that. Um, another thing David Rico says is my self-acceptance is not complacency since it since in itself, it represents an enormous change. Um, I think my self-acceptance took so long, not just my self-acceptance as, you know, an Asian American person or as a queer person or whatever it is, but just self-acceptance for who I am as a product of the way that I was brought up and who I am as a result of my experiences and my cultures and everything combined. Um, and being a, a worthy person, a person that is worthy of love. Um, and also just reflecting that back onto the world and the way that I interact with the world and that, you know, how can I be, how can I connect with people on a level that is beyond trying to save people? Um, I talked earlier about my involvement with mutual aid and, you know, one of the big slogans of mutual aid is it's solidarity and not charity. And I think that's, Mutual aid has existed for years and years. It's nothing new because of COVID. Um, the particular mutual aid group that I'm in is, was formed at the onset of the pandemic in response to the, the food um, insecurity that we were seeing in our neighborhood. 
but you know, it's it's existed. The black the Black Panthers had their free breakfast program. The Young Lords um, had their had their program where you know they inoculated people, they provided food, they provided resources. So it's been around for such a long time, but it was all done out of a sense of solidarity because we are in this together. We're caring for each other. Um, Could you explain for someone who is not familiar? At at all with the term mutual aid could you mm -hmm. give a brief description of it? absolutely yeah so mutual aid is the concept of the framework of locally coming together um, at a neighborhood level to care for each other and so the, the idea of mutual aid is that everybody has something that they need and everyone has something that they can provide and so you know you bring to the table what you're able to provide and you take what you need and it creates this local very base level local framework that is non-hierarchical. So no hierarchy, nobody's leading, nobody's in charge. Um, it's not a formal organization. It's a group of neighbors coming together to care for each other and basically, you know, to show love for each other. And I think it's also in response to any kind of charities or social services where the donors have all of the power, right? If you donate money, you get to decide who it goes to and what exactly it's for. And there's this huge divide between um, the donors and then the deserving poor and the undeserving poor, right? right so we can right. say, well, if you are not gender conforming, you can't enter this homeless shelter, right? Or if you have any drugs in your system, then you can't get food stamps, you know, anything like that. Um, um, and so, yeah, I think it's also that like the government can't help us. None of these private, you know, agencies are, are, are like reliable to really take care of us. Like we have to take care of ourselves. It's very anarchist. And it's very anarchist, you know, it's, we exist outside of the structure of government, outside of the structure of nonprofits. Um, but at a base level, it really is just kind of goes back for centuries. It's taking care of your neighbors, learning who your neighbors are, bringing, everybody brings something to the table. It reminds me of, um, are the kids' story Stone Soup, if you've ever yeah. heard of that. <laughs> it's Stone Soup, right? Like, you know, everybody has something they can bring to put into the soup and everybody can be fed because each person can provide a little bit of something. Um, not to keep quoting David Rico, but he, <laughs> he says, our aliveness is our capacity to give and receive. Um, and I identify with that so much because I think, you know, when you grow up in this, construct of evangelism, which is you're constantly trying to solve other people's, the savior complex, to unlearn that and to come into a structure where you are connecting with people on a personal level um, without means testing or without delving further into what they've done to be deserving of this or undeserving of whatever it is and just, you know, a, a base level human interaction. Um, and I think I've really found kind of joy in that kind of connection. Yeah, I think it's also about like building community and again, fighting back against the capitalist alienation. <laughs> Which um, we should be doing every day. <laughs> isolation, uh, just fo you know, focus on the individual as opposed to the community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was reading also how it's, it's like how hum, humans have survived and have evolved is through cooperation and 
um, you know, there's the, the, the narrative of survival of the fittest, you know, is how we've come to where we are, but that's not true. It's, it's humans helping one another throughout our history. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for a Christian, like this is the ideal of the church, right? Like this is what I think, you know, for serious Christians who take, um, the gospels, you know, and Jesus seriously, like, I think they would argue like, this is what we want. Um, Mm -hmm. But the evangelical Christian church, um, it's as a culture, it's very much more this hierarchy of like, oh, you know, let's help these people. And then also very much these stipulations of who is, who is worthy Again, that right. uh, word of worthy, who is worthy of assistance. Mm-hmm. Right now, we actually run our mutual lead operation out of the basement of a church um, who's run by a very cool pastor. And he runs a, food, a separate food pantry um, in a nearby neighborhood. And when I went to help unload some boxes the other day, there was a giant quote, or there's a quote printed out and posted on the wall. And I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's um, when they... Or like when I say that I provide food for people, they say that I'm a saint. But when I ask why people are going hungry, they call me a communist or something along those lines. And it, you know, that's kind of the concept of mutual aid is like, why are people going hungry? How can we address this on a direct level? Um, But it also struck me that it was posted in a church and I thought that was so cool. (laughs) I was like, this is what Christianity should be about is really, you know, create, like you said, creating that community and, directly addressing those needs. And that's kind of what Christian communities, I think, aspire to. But maybe a lot of it, especially in fundamentalism and evangelism, gets lost in the translation um, or in the very human translation. Well, they also very explicitly will not reject capitalism. So <laughs> I, uh, the head of my parents' uh, organization, the Evangelical Covenant Church, wrote a paper on classism and he thought he was like doing this big thing because he's like, actually even worse than racism is cap is, is classism. And, but he was like, now, 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 I'm not going to say anything about capitalism. And it's like, why not? <laughs> you think you're so radical talking about class, but you're not <laughs> even going to go like you're not even gonna delve into capitalism. I was yeah, like you're not gonna flip the vendor tables at the temple, isn't that? Isn't that? <laughs> and and I think that's just so telling of mm. of this particular brand of Christianity, right? That is just always gonna be ineffective in the in the work that they profess that they want to do because they can't address capitalism. Or they don't want to, right? right, the, right. I mean, the entire model it, it depends on capitalism to run, so, yeah. And, yeah, and, you know, that's why going back to kind of those, the hierarchy of needs that they purport to, or that Christianity purports to cover, you can't really address safety or survival or any of those needs if you don't directly address what's causing the lack of these basic needs. And I think that's what it all goes back to is, well, sure, maybe you have belonging in a, in to, up to a certain point, but then how are you addressing these other needs for people to fully thrive and flourish as, you know, self-actualized human beings? 
we've touched on a lot of things already um, about your experience growing up in a missionary religious environment, but is there anything else you would like to share about that and how you feel about it now? Yeah, I mean, I think we've touched on a lot of it. Um, Can I ask, Trace, mm -hmm. what was the denomination that uh, you grew up with um, and like the kind of flavor of Christianity that you grew up sure. with? Sure. Uh, spicy. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was, so my parents are actually both born again Christians. They met in college and they, um, I think my mom converted in high school. My dad converted in college. The environment that I grew up in, so my parents were not missionaries, but they considered themselves tent makers. So the term tent maker, you know, you're a local Christian who kind of paves the way or provides groundwork for the missionaries who come from the U.S. or other Western cultures. Um, and so I was raised evangelical free was kind of the church that I grew up in. Um, but it's, it's basically, you know, focus on the family, Dr. James Dobson, to train up a child, um, all of that flavor of Christianity, um, which is really just fundamental uh, evangelical Christianity at its most harmful. Mm. And was there um, a particular moment where you were like, oh, I used to be Christian and, I, and I'm not anymore. I mean, for me, it was basically a four-year-long process as I was attending a Christian college. Um, so there's not always like one specific moment, but what was, mm -hmm. I guess, your timeline? Oof. Um, I think it's ongoing. Well, or maybe you I mean, still consider yourself an evangelical Christian. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Surprise! Ambush evangelism. Here we go. No, um, I, I was. It was really a years-long process, and I think you know, not to go back to the vocabulary uh, subject, but I don't think I had the vocabulary outside of Christianity to understand why I didn't vibe with with Christianity, or why I didn't believe in the things that Christianity said I should believe in. Um, and I didn't have, like, for example, I think Marlene Winnell's Leaving the Fold is such an important book because it provides you with the framework and the context and the language to say, here's what you were brought up to believe. Here's the, here are the exact thing, ways in which Christianity can be harmful. And here, here's what you can do to heal yourself from it. And I didn't have that healing part for so long that I didn't understand that I was still living in fear of the battle, Holy Trinity, and, you know, Satan and hell and all of that. Um, there's a big controversy right now with Lil Nas X and his new song, yes. um, where he is, I think, twerking <laughs> on the devil. Um, and, you know, one of the things that he tweeted, um, he said something along the lines of, you taught me for so long to hate myself for being you know, the way I am. And you told me that I was going to hell. So now I'm showing you myself in hell. Like, what's up? <laughs> and, you know, say what you will about Lil Nas X, but I think that is so, such a true concept in that, you know, when you're taught growing up that you are evil and sinful and the devil is in you. And I mean, I've had this may be, you know, a, a content warning for listeners who might have gone through similar experiences, but I've gone through, like, actual exorcisms performed on me 
um, as part of trying to release whatever demons are inside of me. And I think when you go through that as an impressionable child or young adult, it is so hard for you to divorce yourself from the concept of the evil that exists in you or, you know, the, the idea that you're this unworthy, undeserving kind of disgusting human being, right? And I think the healing process for me was definitely took a long time, like you said, I mean, over the course of years and years, because I had to really understand first that it was okay to be a fully formed human being outside of the construct of evangelical Christianity, and then also to identify the ways in which I was lied to as a kid, you know, to identify what's okay, what's not, what's, what is good, what is evil? Um, is universal morality a thing? <laughs> um, and so I think, yeah, um, it's, it's an ongoing process, but I think that it really, the turning point, I don't know, I, would, I wouldn't say that there's one specific turning point, but I do think that maybe coming out um, was one such experience where um, I think I came out on Facebook um, when I was like 16 or 17. And <laughs> yeah, I remember that Facebook post. Do you remember? Because I, I think I had an FAQ on that coming out post, which looking back, I'm like, of course I had an FAQ on my coming out post. What a dumb thing to do. <laughs> really? But, um, and, but you know why I had an FAQ was because I was so afraid of being seen as unchristian despite coming out mm. that I had done like six months worth of research on why Christianity and homosexuality can coexist. Mm. And I was like, well, people need to know that I can still be a good person and still come out. And I was so worried about how people would take it that I was like, let me cushion this with an FAQ. Very corporate thinking, right? Um, (laughs) But funny, and, you know, the people who still wrote to me with kind of hate still did. You know, it's not like it changed any of that. And people from CAJ specifically that I haven't spoken to since. But, you know, I remember probably every single one of those messages, I don't even remember the supportive ones. I hate to say this, but like, I don't remember any of the supportive messages. I, but I specifically remember who was, who reached out to me with kind of, you know, harmful rhetoric Mm. or said hurtful things, because those are the things that stick with you when you grow Mm. up in an evangelical Christian environment, thinking that you are not worthy of love, thinking that you're Mm. evil. Um, it reinforces that view. And I think it's language that is more easily internalized than language of acceptance because yeah. maybe you don't believe that people actually accept that. You, you might think, you know, oh, they're just saying that to seem like a good friend or to seem whatever, more modern. Mm. Wow. When I remember so that so clearly. And, yeah. and I, was, I was shocked because growing up, I had no concept of like, what is it being gay? Right. Um, so <laughs> it's like, looking I. back, it was like, of course you were gay. <laughs> but like at the time, I was like, what? But I, and I remember mm-hmm. people commenting like, oh, I'm so proud of you. And I was like, oh, they can say that? Yeah. I remember I didn't mm-hmm. know what to say because, first of all, I didn't really know what it meant to be gay. And I didn't know if it was okay to be gay. And so I think I commented like, oh, I miss like talking to you and geometry. 
the maybe the Hughesby family culture uh, approach of uh, going around the issue. Yeah, of like um. avoiding the issue. <laughs> and like that was me trying to be supportive. Um, but like I couldn't even say like, oh, like that's great. Like. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people felt that way, you know, or they were just coming like, hey, I love you. And I was like, yeah, but like, what's that mean? Well, like, what do you think about this particular topic? Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, I had no frame of reference for being gay either. I didn't know a single other gay person at CHA or who yeah. was out at the time. You were the only person for me. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I... I think, you know, that was what made it even scarier is that I had absolutely no frame of reference mm -hmm. for how any of it worked. And yeah. I think for a long time, I really accepted what I thought was love from different people because I didn't know what love looked like in the context of, you know, being queer, being gay, or, you know, what acceptable love looked like because I grew up thinking that I would never have something like that. Mm. And I think that's why when we talk about language being important and vocabulary being important, representation is also important. And having, you know, people who've paved the way before you or to have people to look up to mm. um, is so important because you don't, when you don't have a frame of reference, it's easy to fall back into harmful ways of thinking mm -hmm. um and I think the references that I was given were all people who had gone through conversion therapy or like mm -hmm. people who came out once and then now they're married with a wife and like mm -hmm. that can be you too mm -hmm. and I just remember thinking like well that's not what I want yeah. <laughs> and I don't you know is that really how I have to live um so yeah I mean I think that was a pretty big turning point in the way that I started to critically think about the way my identity, but also my identity as a Christian, as an evangelical Christian, and my relationship to Christianity as a whole. I think this ties well with the question about what reform needs to happen at CHA mm -hmm. um, because it, it, it makes me think about how kind of mild support is completely ineffective like mm -hmm. and for me I'm also learning personally of like actually articulating um, things I guess I, I'm I'm practicing like just saying what I believe uh, outright, even though I know it will offend Christians, mm. <laughs> and that's a skill for me. Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. that I'm still not comfortable with. It's not mm -hmm. easy, and just realizing like this, like calling out, being direct in calling out, you know, homophobia or hateful uh beliefs or um messaging like it has to be direct we can't have this ambiguous like oh i love you because mm. that's just like the you know it can still be love the sinner hate the sin type mm. of mm -hmm. yeah. toxic faux support so yeah what what do you think needs to happen at caj <laughs> to, <laughs> for it to improve sure um i mean 
I think CAG is a concept. I don't personally feel like it is an important entity that it needs to exist. <laughs> um, I mean, mm -hmm. let me think about it. When, I, when I think about it in the framework of like maybe harm reduction, I think that if CAJ is going to exist, here are the reforms that could happen. Yeah. Um, because I think there are plenty of other resources or ways that, you know, the, the Japanese American community or the American community in Japan can have better school, schooling and education and all of that. But, you know, all that aside, um, I really think not just language, but maybe um, like support and therapy for the kids who attend um, without, you know, I mean, obviously the most radical form of uh, change at CA, reformation at CAJ is to completely abolish this evangelical Christian framework. But I don't think any of us see that happening within the next 300 years. Um, so what, you know, to have a qualified, to have qualified faculty and administration that can work to actively minimize harm within mm. the community. Um, when I think about my experience there and some of the more extreme examples uh, without naming names, for example, um, like there are two instances, incidents that kind of really stand out to me. One was when I, I think I was walking in the hallway between classes and I was, I had my arm around one of my friends who was a guy and we were singing something together. And I remember getting pulled aside by the school counselor and being like, hey, like, you know, that's like, if you're gay, that's a sin, right? And to me, in that moment, I was like, well, I wish I just had my arm around someone I was singing. Like, I, I don't even know that I'm gay. Mm -hmm. So, like, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. But I think to be so actively ascribed an identity that I wasn't even sure of myself mm -hmm. and then being told that it was wrong um, was that stuck with me for a long time. And I think that it really, you know, that was just one example of a lot of the microaggressions that happened within CHA that kind of tore me down as a person. But when I think about other kids, maybe even present day who are going through things and don't have the resources or might be going through the similar things, it really kind of burdens me because I think about all the ways in which harm continues to be perpetuated at CAJ, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why I think also this podcast is so important because maybe some current students, you know, are listening to it and hearing about all these different stories and learning new vocabulary for themselves or learning, you know, different kind of frameworks of thinking to say, hey, maybe, you know, I'm not this terrible person that deserves all of this, or maybe mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, maybe I'm, it's okay for me to be a fully formed human being um, outside of the CAJ paradigm. <laughs> yeah. That said, um, you know, I think the positives of CAJ for me were, there were a lot of people that believed in me as a person and were very nurturing of and not maybe there were you know there were several people who were <laughs> um who who were able to nurture me and um 
this is going to be my last David Rico quote, I swear, but I wrote this down because it was so important to me, is in a very real way, we are who we are because of the love others have shown us. Our every adult asset began as a gift from someone who loved us as we were and thereby encouraged our unique self-emergence. Our origin was in this loving, I'm sorry, in this living dialogue of love, and we are still alive because of this love. And I think even within all the harm that I experienced at CAJ, those people stand out to me and that they believed in me for whatever it was that I was doing at that moment. And it really helped to kind of nurture who I am as an adult. And I think the assets that I have now as an adult that I'm proud of are things that were, you know, some of those things were things that people at CHA encouraged me to follow or continue or support it in one way or another, um, including the friendships, some of the friendships that I've had from CHA. So, I mean, this leads us naturally into uh, what does radical healing look like for you? <laughs> so radical healing for me, um, I, I, you know, talked about this earlier, but was relearning a language, mm. was relearning the language of love, relearning the language of identity, relearning the language of worldview, and how I speak, not just how I speak with people, but how I speak to myself and how I think about myself and the world around me. Um, and I think that was the most radical thing <laughs> that I've gone through in the past 15 whatever years that I've left CHA um, and the evangelical community as a whole is learning, relearning um, everything that I was taught and re reassigning words and emotions and identities to things that I had either suppressed or were taught to view in a different light, um, including the people around me and including the people of Japan, um, you know, just so many broad strokes. But I think just in general, it, it's really changed how I relate to the world, including myself. Thank you so much for sharing. No, thank you for having me. I mean, this is, this is, I really think that this podcast is so important. And I hope, you know, that any maybe current students or recently graduated students who need resources or who need somebody to talk to can reach out, um, you know, to the podcast or to the people who are on the podcast or even myself. Um, because I think that having somebody to talk to and listen to you for what you have to say and who you are is so important. Mm. And therapy is very important. So if you're not in therapy already, go to therapy. <laughs> Thank you, Trace. You are so fucking brilliant and well-prepared with all your quotes. <laughs> I was your... like, what I want to share? Um, well, can I share some resources with people that yes. I think would be great? Yes, please. Um, so I know that Julianne's already recommended this, but Leaving the Fold with Marlene Winnell by Yeah, Marlene I love Winnell, that you have read that as um, well. Is such a great workbook. Um, I also recommend How to Be an Adult um, by David Rico. And also a book called Mutual Aid by Dean Spade um, is a great kind of introductory guide to mutual aid, the way that it works and kind of the, the structure of it. Um, 
And if you're really interested in attachment therapy, I recommend Attachment and Psychotherapy by David J. Wallen. Um, it is a very long, complicated book, but it really, um, it's actually written more for psychotherapists, but it really helped me work through and kind of identify a lot of the, my thought processes and the way that I was raised. So if you're into long books, I would suggest that as well. Awesome. We will include those links in the episode show notes for people to check out. Sounds good. All right. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Radical Healing Podcast. This podcast is made by Erica Hughesby and Julianne Picardo with music by Marlos Townsend. You can find and subscribe to Radical Healing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information and more resources, check out our website, RadicalHealingPod.com and follow us on Instagram at RadicalHealingPod. We're always looking for more people who would like to share their story, whether it's about the CJ experience, growing up international, or Radical Healing. If you'd like to get in touch, send us an email at RadicalHealingPod at gmail.com.